I invite you to turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. This letter from the Apostle Peter was written to scattered Christians that were living across the region of Asia Minor, which we would know today as Turkey. Uh, the believers from various cities and representing different congregations all had one thing in common. They were experiencing antagonism and threats from those around them. Uh, some were even being actively persecuted. Peter is dealing, of course, with how to handle the hostility that is common to every Christian who follows closely after the Lord Jesus. How do we impact those around us for God and for good? That is what Peter is addressing in his letter and what we continue to come back to. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, as I read verses 8 and 9. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This is the word of God. Stuart Holden, he was a British pastor that lived in the early part of the 20th century. He was in Egypt at one point, and he met a British sergeant that was stationed there. And learning that this man was a Christian, Holden asked him, how were you brought to Christ? It's always a good question to ask somebody that you find out is a Christian. How did you become a Christian? The sergeant responded that there was a private in his company who had himself been converted to Christ in Malta. And the sergeant said, I gave him a terrible time. One night the private came in, he was wet and he was bone tired from guard duty. And as usual, he kneeled down to pray right there in the barracks before going to bed. The sergeant continued, my boots, they were covered in mud. And I threw them both at him, hitting him in the head twice. And he just kept kneeling and praying. The sergeant paused a moment, then he continued, The next morning when I woke up, I found that my boots had been beautifully polished and placed at my bedside. This was his reply to me that broke my heart. That day, I was brought to repentance. Does it really make a difference if you return good for evil? Well, it did at least for this one man. Peter begins this section with the words, to sum up, verse 8. So what is he summarizing? Well, if you recall, a new section in this letter started back in chapter 2, verse 11. And what Peter is now summarizing is all that he has written since then. So this section that we've been looking at has primarily dealt with social relationships. Every Christian lives under governmental authority. Peter gave instructions about how to do that, how to function in that realm. Then he addressed those Christians who found themselves in servitude to someone else. Slavery was an undesirable yet realistic condition in the first century Roman Empire. Thankfully, it's not an issue that we're dealing with in this nation in 2023, though there are many places in the world where slavery in different forms still exists. Even when a master is harsh or unreasonable, the Christian who was a slave could influence him with patience and godly behavior. 
And for us, we learned some principles about how to relate to employers, which we all do from time to time. Peter then turned to husband and wife relationships. First, he addressed wives, and we considered what submission looks like within a marriage. And specifically under consideration was the way the behavior of a wife married to a non-Christian would influence him where her words had failed to do so. Then Peter concluded, and we looked at this last week, with a call on husbands to honor their wives. This would not only ensure a marriage that glorifies God, but also a marriage that impacts a watching world. So here in verses 8 and 9, we will observe really two responses to sum up what has been said thus far. Two responses. One of those is responding to one another and responding to others. Responding to one another and responding to others. So first of all, responding to one another. With all that he has written in mind, Peter continues in verse 8 here. Again, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. These five character traits describe the expectations for every Christian, regardless of social status, regardless of gender, regardless of, of marital status. These descriptive words should characterize the behavior of, of believers everywhere toward one another. How do we respond to one another? Of course, we should also act in these ways toward those who are outside of the church, but primarily these are considerations for our fellowship with one another. Think about the situation of Peter's audience. They are faced on a regular basis with antagonism and hostility, whereas we are perhaps in danger of taking for granted our gathering together. I promise you that Peter's readers did not. They relied on their Christian community for spiritual and for emotional support. The believing community was their refuge. If you are confronted consistently by people who make your life difficult precisely because you are a follower of Jesus, then these five characteristics are vital for your spiritual health. Your brothers and sisters are your life support, and you are theirs. This first descriptive word, this first adjective, harmonious, can also be and might be translated in, in the translation you're looking at, can be translated like-minded, harmonious or like-minded. And this word harmonious, it was commonly used in Roman society. What it meant was a common heritage of faith and ethical tradition. So basically, these are, these are ideas that bind countries together, that bind cultures together. These are similarities that people rally around. In our nation, these ideas have traditionally been things like keeping your word or working hard or saving for the future. These values and these traditions that we hold, that, that they provide cohesion to a society. And they can be as simple as, as gathering around a, a grill for a barbecue with friends or sitting together and watching fireworks as we did a month ago on Independence Day. If people do not have shared interests and ideas and goals, they will not endure as a people. So Peter takes this well-known concept that was expressed with the word harmonious, and he applies it to the followers of Jesus. But here's the difference. In Roman society, this included, this harmony that was talked about, included making 
these sharp ethnic distinctions and these sharp class distinctions. In other words, the, the wealthy and the well-positioned did not associate with slaves. The resident did not have the same rights as the citizen. But in Christ, Peter is pointing out, these distinctions, they're abolished. Becoming a Christian does not change your ethnicity, right? It doesn't even necessarily change your social standing, though it might. But it does make these things irrelevant. They don't matter. Among the people of God, we acknowledge that our former ways of doing things and, and the way that we even used to recognize other people is, as Peter described back in chapter 1, verse 18, a futile way of life that was inherited from your forefathers. This harmony that, that exists in the church is a like-mindedness that those outside of the church can never understand. We don't build our lives on a foundation of values and traditions that are given to us by society. And some of these, they're good and they're useful, no doubt. But they're not stable and they're not deep enough to give our lives meaning. As Christians, we build our lives on the word of God. This is the teaching which binds us together. And this shared belief in the scriptures, it continually points us to Jesus who unifies us in a way that nothing else could. It's like an orchestra. There are different people, different instruments, but the music that's on the stand, it ensures that everybody is playing together. The music that is played can only be produced when everyone's working together, not doing their own thing. That's not going to work in the orchestra pit. Each is focused on playing the piece and following the conductor who will lead them to play it well. The scriptures are our sheets of music, and the conductor is the Holy Spirit. He shows us how to play the music. That is, shows us how the Bible applies to our lives. We don't go off and do our own things as individuals. We play the piece according to the part as dictated by the music that's before us. And then God makes the church something that's life-giving to one another, something that's beautiful to behold. This is harmonious living. This means that you lay aside selfish interest. I'm not competing with your interest, but I'm, I'm looking for how I can help you achieve God's will for your life. And you're looking for that same thing as far as it pertains to me. How can what I play complement what you are playing? The conductor, he doesn't want the audience to hear just one instrument all the time. He wants the audience to appreciate the much more glorious sound of everyone playing something slightly different, yet contributing to the whole. When you're doing God's will for your life, and I'm doing God's will for mine, we're playing off the same piece of music. In order for us to live harmoniously, I have to assure that I'm not hindering you, but complimenting you. So better that I lay aside my own feelings and preferences and stop what I'm doing rather than hindering you from doing what God has called you to do. I understand what God's called me to do is not more important than what he's called you to do. It's my duty as a brother to harmonize with you. So like-mindedness does not mean that we all have to agree on everything. 
But it does mean that when we disagree, we do not allow the disagreement to keep us from loving one another. Disagreement does not mean I stop doing whatever I can to help you accomplish God's will for your life. So the second character trait that we come to is sympathetic. Sympathetic. This word suggests the idea of suffering with, suffering alongside of. You voluntarily enter into the lives of your brothers and sisters in order to share their joy or to share their pain. Joy is enhanced when it's shared, even as sorrow is lessened when others bear sorrow with us. This is a kind of self-forgetfulness that embraces the feelings of others. In a, another passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul compares the church to the human body, a familiar picture. And this is what he writes in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. If I'm getting up in the middle of the night to make my way to the bathroom and I stub my toe, right, then my whole body is affected. It's not just my toe. I can't isolate that pain. Every part of me is asking why. Why'd you do that? We should instinctively feel each other's pain as well as each other's joy. And when we sense a brother or sister suffering, we should, not, we should no more ignore that than we can try to ignore step two. It's just not going to work. So we identify with each other's needs and concerns. We, we enter into each other's lives to the extent that I feel what you feel and you feel what I feel. Now, in doing so, you don't want to get consumed by another person's feelings. That's not going to help you or them. But you do want to be close enough to a brother or to a sister so that to a degree, you feel like what is happening to them is happening to you. And this does take strength. It takes strength of character to, to be able to set aside personal feelings and personal preferences about what you would rather be doing with your time and energy as you enter into the suffering or even the joy of another. There are two things we want to guard against in doing so. First, when you're receiving sympathy, you don't want to become dependent on other people. It's necessary for all of us to lean on one another, especially during difficult seasons. But your need for sympathy should not devolve into dependency. Nor should the desire to show sympathy become something you need so that you feel good about yourself. The idea of being sympathetic is to rejoice when others rejoice. It's to mourn when they mourn. And we all know that periods of rejoicing and mourning are not permanent. The sympathy of another helps us get through them, not stay in them. Secondly, guard against becoming a busybody. Though we are called to be intimately involved in one another's lives, we're not to be consumed with each other's business. If you feel the need to always insert yourself in what you perceive as, as another person's problems or difficulties or drama, that's a reflection of your own neediness, not theirs. It's not spiritually healthy for you or for the other person or for the church 
if you're always at the center of another person's grief or joy. We mourn and we rejoice with others, not for them. In Nigeria, it's common for close relatives and friends, female especially, to mourn excessively and loudly when somebody dies. In the village where I lived, there was one lady in particular who always made a point to go to every funeral. Even if the funeral was in another village, I might have shared this before. Uh, She was basically the unpaid professional mourner. And she's inevitably going to be found in the front, wailing loudly, right there with the family and close friends. She occasionally did some work for us, and it was with a sort of a this disconcerting glee that she would announce at times that she couldn't work on a certain day because she was going off to a funeral. Sympathy is knowing when to enter into another person's joy or pain and when not to. It takes discernment. Our goal is to build one another up, not to use one another for our own emotional needs. But here's the reality. When you give up your time and your energy to selflessly sympathize with a brother or sister, you will find that your own emotional needs are met in the process. Maybe not the way that you desire, because we do tend to put ourselves at the center of attention. We can sympathize with others simply as a way to get attention, but if you are truly seeking to comfort somebody else, you are going to be comforted in the process. This next trait that we see in verse 8, is brotherly. You might have brotherly love there. I'm going to skip it for a moment and come back to it for reasons that will be apparent. So this brings us to the word kind-hearted. You might have in your translation compassionate instead of kind-hearted. So if we take these two English words, kind-hearted and compassionate, and we combine them, then we get tender-hearted, which is probably the closest to describing what Peter is saying here, tender-hearted. If you see a brother or sister in need and your heart is moved, you should be moved. This is compassion. This is what it means to show compassion. Emotion in action. Matthew 14, 14. We read that Jesus saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Jesus' heart was pricked when he observed all the people who had gathered to see him and to hear from him. And he did not just feel tenderness toward their needs. He acted on this feeling by healing those who were afflicted and suffering physically. In fact, this verse I just read in Matthew 14 is leading up to Matthew's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus realizing that these people have come to see him and that they will go to bed hungry once again feels compassion. And so this time he feeds them. We take care of one another because we care about one another. If you see your brother or sister who is in need and your heart is moved, you should move. We use our inner organs to describe courage. Think about it. People will say, he's got guts. She's got guts, right? The Greeks, they would say the same thing. They would link the stomach to bravery. But the ancient Hebrews, this would be Peter's tradition, Peter's heritage. He linked the feeling that you get inside your belly, that feeling, with mercy and concern. 
the priest and the Levite who passed by the injured and, and the bleeding man in Jesus' parable, they might have felt pity. They might have been moved within, but neither of them stopped. It was the Samaritan who actually acted on his concern, the foreigner. He compassionately tended to the wounded man. He got his hands dirty. He was inconvenienced. He paid the, man ex the man's expenses at the end. If your heart is moved, you should move. Only then is it truly compassion. In our modern society, compassion is often defined more like pity. I'm sorry for what someone else is going through. In modern Americans, we tend to act with compassion abstractly. In the abstract, and this is what I mean by that. We can be generously compassionate toward people who've lost everything in, say, a fire, or to flood victims, or to those who've been devastated by a hurricane on the coast. From a distance, we can feel sorry for those victims, as we should. And then our solution is to send money and supplies, which we should be doing. That's a good thing. But typically, unless you're heading to the affected area to personally lend a hand, our compassion is largely hands-off. It might make us feel better. It'll even help. But it's detached compassion. And this is not the kind-heartedness of verse 8 that Peter's talking about. This is not pity. This is action. In the first century Roman Empire, this word compassion, it was used to describe what was expected of family members towards one another. And the reason that Peter chooses to use this word is to imply that the church, the Christian community, understands itself as a type of family. We might use words like brother or sister, but do we really consider one another family? The Bible never calls for someone to reject their family, their physical family, when they become a Christian. They may reject you, but you don't reject them. But the call is to make sure you don't love your physical family more than you love Jesus. You might be tied by blood to your earthly family, but you're tied by the Holy Spirit to your spiritual family. So this was not a popular message in Peter's day, and it's not a popular message now. Compassion. Next, we're told to be humble toward one another. This last word of verse 8, humble toward one another. Whereas harmony was a, was a social value, to be harmonious was this value in the ancient world, the ancient Greek and Roman world, and compassion and sympathy, they were family values. Humility, to be humble, humility was disdained all the way around. Humility is uniquely Christian, and it's very countercultural. One scholar put it like this, in the highly competitive and stratified world of Greco-Roman antiquity, humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame, and inability to defend one's honor. The Roman Empire was an honor-shame society. And in honor-shame societies, you don't get ahead by letting yourself get walked all over. You get ahead by standing up for yourself. You get ahead by making sure that every slight on your honor is avenged. And then here comes Peter and he says, all of you be humble in spirit. Humility, 
uniquely Christian, countercultural. Humility is not thinking badly about yourself. It's simply not thinking about yourself at all. If you realize how entirely dependent you are on God, you will have a proper view of yourself. Then you'll be able to regard others properly. If you need so much grace, surely you must extend that same grace to others. Paul puts it like this in Romans 12, 3. I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but mm -hmm. to think so as to have sound judgment. Peter had learned humility, as we must all, in the school of life's difficulties. He denied Jesus three times after boastfully proclaiming that even if everyone fell away, he would not, he would stand. And later Jesus, he comes and he restores Peter on the beach one morning after his resurrection. And for each of those three denials, Jesus affirms Peter by telling him to feed his sheep. And that's exactly what we find Peter doing in his letter. He's feeding God's people. No one can come to Christ without first humbling themselves. No one is going to advance spiritually without humility. In one way or the other, the Lord is going to strip you of every desire to put yourself first. Now, don't beat yourself up about how bad you are. God already knows that. God's not surprised about my badness or your badness. We're surprised about it, but he's not. That's why he sent his son to die for you. So if God loves you, don't hate yourself. Yet, keep before you how dependent you are upon the Lord. And in this way, you will not treat others as someone less than, but you will treat them as you've been treated by the Lord. Humble in spirit. Often the, the structure of a sentence or a passage is designed to, to draw the reader's attention to a particular word or idea. And I'm pointing this out because the middle word, which I skip, of these five characteristics is brotherly. And it's placed in the middle for a reason. It's the most important of all the virtues because it encompasses them all. To be harmonious, sympathetic, kind-hearted, and humble is to be a brother or sister to one another. Simply put, we are called to love one another as family. Remember, the Christians to whom Peter is writing, they are scattered, they are persecuted, they are feeling like strangers among populations who are laughing at them, who are scorning them, who are often downright hostile toward them. So it's no accident that the New Testament is using this family language over and over to emphasize the new relationships formed when you become a Christian and enter into the church, you have a new family, an eternal family. And in a society where family was everything and not having a family was devastating, the fact that you now have brothers and sisters in the church as your family is a big deal. This new family that was the church, it offered Christians the relationships they so desperately needed as society turned its back on them. So on one hand, you have the church that's threatening the social order because it puts these obligations on, on each of us that are usually only reserved for family. On the other hand, 
The church is offering stability and encouragement to those who need to know that they are loved. And that's all of us. And this is how we respond to one another. What about responding to others? Responding to others. If we're to act with brotherly kindness and affection toward one another, then we're to act according to verse 9 toward those outside of the church in this way, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Verse 9, this is the whole reason that Peter wrote this letter in the first place. The Christian communities were being threatened. They were the recipients of insults, of defamation, of verbal abuse. They were being publicly shamed. They were being discredited. And again, this is all taking place within this honor-shame culture. In other words, I'm pointing that out because it was expected of you to defend your honor at all costs, by force, if necessary. And this is what is shocking about the Christian message. You are not to verbally retaliate, much less physically retaliate. There is enormous social pressure, even for us to do so. But this pressure was much greater in the first century. On top of that, it's human nature for us to retaliate, at least to put that person in their place, or to let everyone know that what was said about you isn't true. And here Peter comes along, echoing the words of Jesus, and he writes, Do not return evil for evil, or insult for insult. Period. This is hard. It's hard to bite your tongue. It's hard to exercise self-control. It's hard not to lash out. It's hard to refuse to defend your honor or your reputation. It's hard. But you know what happens when you give insult for insult and evil for evil? You set in motion a repeating cycle. This cycle that just perpetuates itself. It begins with insults back and forth. And it escalates to threats. And it culminates with violence. I saw this in Nigeria all the time. Whole tribes fighting and often killing one another. Generation after generation and it all began with two farmers arguing over who owns a banana tree growing near a property line. And no one even remembers why anymore. Watchman Nee, the Chinese pastor that I mentioned before, he told a story about a poor Chinese farmer that he knew who had become a Christian. And every day this farmer, he would pump water into his rice fields that were high in the mountains. If you know anything about growing rice, you know rice takes a lot of water. And he was using the kind of pump that was common in China at the time, early 20th century. It was foot-powered. So every day this farmer, he spends hours pumping water with his feet, essentially riding a bicycle uphill to get it up to his farmland. And when he would return to his farm the next day, he saw that his non-Christian neighbor, who lived down the hill, had opened up the dikes during the night and drained all the water into his own rice paddies. Well, for a while, the farmer, the Christian, he ignored the injustice. He just kept pumping water day after day. 
And his neighbor kept draining the water into his own fields day after day. And finally, the guy becomes desperate. Because he knows if something doesn't change, his rice is going to die. And so with his livelihood, and maybe even him. What does he do? He's a Christian. He goes to the church. And they pray about it. And afterwards, the brothers and sisters, they come up with a solution. The next day, the Christian farmer, he pumps water as usual. But this time, he first pumps enough water to fill his neighbor's field, and then he pumps water to fill his own. And he does this, taking the extra time, the extra hours, over several days. And finally, his neighbor comes to him. And this time, he is the one who's desperate. He's amazed that day after day, this guy would pump enough water for both fields. And he wants to know what in the world would compel him to act so selflessly instead of trying to kill him for stealing his water. And what does the Christian say to him? Verse 9, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. That's what the Bible tells me to do. And guess what? His neighbor becomes a Christian too. You see, the command is not just do not retaliate. Yeah, that's the first part of verse 9, but that's only half of it. Look at the rest of the verse. But give a blessing instead. Do not retaliate, but give a blessing. In the Greek world and the Roman world, to bless meant to speak favorably of someone. It meant to build them up before others. You speak well of them. And this is one aspect of blessing somebody. But in the biblical sense, as the Old Testament uses the idea of blessing and Jesus reinforces it, to bless means to ask God to favor that person. Jesus says these astounding words that Peter heard with his own ears. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray what? Pray that God blesses them and really mean it. And what should you be doing in the meantime? Well, you should be looking for ways to bless them. How can you pray for God's favor on that person and you not be willing to show them kindness, to speak well of them, to go out of your way to help them? How can you be asking God to do something that you're not willing to do? And then you might say, well, I don't have anything good to say about them. I bet you can find at least one redeeming quality about that person. Everybody's got at least one. Maybe they have nice hair. I don't know. Focus on that. And guess what? We talked about this earlier in Sunday school. As you pray for God to bless your enemy, you'll find that a shift begins to take place in your own heart. They won't seem so much like an enemy anymore. You'll begin to see them as God sees them. And God sees them the same way that he sees you, by the way. God sees all of his enemies as potential friends. At one time, you were his enemy. At one time, I was God's enemy. But thank God that Jesus died for us when we were yet sinners, when we were yet enemies. Look at the end of verse 9. But giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This is something we should pay attention to. A 
that tells us the purpose for which God called us. The question is, is that purpose pointing back in the verse or is it pointing forward in the verse? In other words, were you and I called in order to give a blessing or in order to inherit a blessing? Well, without getting into a whole bunch of technical grammar stuff, the answer is we were called for the purpose of blessing those who do evil to us and insult us. We were called for that purpose. Let that sink in. It makes sense, doesn't it? The whole theme of Peter's letter is how to respond to hostility and antagonism for following Jesus. One of the main reasons, therefore, that God called you is so that you can do exactly what Jesus did. Bless those who curse. In fact, if you are a Christian, you will do this. Why? Let me show you. If we think about the character traits from verse 8, we realize how impossible they are to implement. There's only one who lived in perfect harmony with God and with man. There's only one who is always sympathetic to everyone's pain and weaknesses. There's only one who is brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus lived out all of those values in a way that you and I never could. Jesus refused to return evil to those who crucified him. He even refused to insult those who hurled insults at him as he was dying on a cross. I mean, who does that? Who insults somebody that's dying, that's being executed? Jesus died the death that you and I should have died, and God placed your sins and mine on him and then Jesus rose from the dead into new life. Now, only because he died and rose again, does God count your sins to Jesus' account and count his righteousness to yours. God sees you just as he sees his son, if you are a Christian. So that means God views you as if you are Harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not only that, if you are a Christian, God, through the Holy Spirit who lives in you, empowers you to act harmoniously, sympathetically, with brotherly love, with compassion, and with humility. This is not your doing, it's God's. And more than that, you're called to bless those who curse you, even as Jesus did the same to his enemies. Jesus is your example. Jesus is my example, yes. But that's not enough. If that's all that Jesus was, if that's all he was was an example, then you would have no hope of following such an example. But Jesus is also the one who died because you failed to live out the purpose for which God created you. And now Jesus lives so that his life might enable you to act towards your brothers and sisters and enemies in a way that you never could on your own. You don't bless your enemies in order to inherit a blessing. You bless your enemies because you have inherited a blessing already. You see, every Christian is promised eternal life. And... That life does not start sometime in the future. 
Eternal life starts the moment that you are placed in the family, which is the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. God calls you to be like Jesus. And Jesus did not return evil for evil or insult for insult. He gave a blessing instead. Jesus blessed you by becoming a curse for you. Jesus was cursed on the cross, cursed by a curse that was for you, that was for me. And because Jesus was cursed in your place then, he lives his life in your place now. The blessing of eternal life is yours because Jesus earned life on your behalf. It doesn't matter how difficult things get here. It doesn't matter how hostile those around us become toward us. Nothing can change your inheritance. Jesus purchased it with his life. So because your future is secure, your purpose, my purpose, is to give a blessing in return for evil. This is what Jesus Christ did for us. This is why we are willing to be cursed by others if the way in which we respond might somehow, in some way, bring a blessing to them. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we have been challenged by your word today. And we understand that doing that which you call us to, living in the way that you call us to live is impossible in and of ourselves. But Father, once again, we look toward the Lord Jesus Christ, who's already demonstrated the length to which he will go to reconcile us to you, to ensure that we receive the Holy Spirit, to guarantee that we are being made more and more into his image so as to fulfill your purpose. Lord, help us to do that. Give us your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, and we love you.